Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I really thought it was super funny. That was funny. I don't know about you guys, but my heart really swelled. Like, I actually cared about them. Well, imagine writing and directing seven classic films in three years. That's never happened. He was the most famous writer-director in Hollywood, and his career fell apart very quickly. Welcome to episode 202 of Film Generations, the podcast previously known as Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers and see if it still plays to today's generation. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker and an instructor at the Los Angeles Film School and co-founder and CEO of Electrocast Media. I'm David Tausick. I write and direct, but most of all, I love to watch great movies. Hi, I'm Kelly LaRue. I'm a recent graduate of USC Film School, and I am an inspiring film journalist. My name is Olive, and I am a senior at Emerson College studying film and sociology. Hi, I'm Jake Flowers, and I'm a student at the Los Angeles Film School. This past week, we watched the incomparable writer-director Preston Sturge's screwball rom-com from 1941, The Lady Eve, starring Barbara Stanwyck as a slick con woman who takes nerdy millionaire Henry Fonda for the ride of a lifetime. This movie pushed the boundaries of the production code with some of the funniest and most sophisticated suggestive dialogue ever. So did our panel of young film lovers buy this witty but improbable tale? Let's find out. Who was seeing The Lady Eve for the very first time? Me. Okay, so everybody (laughs) except for David and myself. Uh, I was a little curious about it because I saw it's a screwball comedy. And I'm a huge Abbott and Costello fan. I grew up watching their films, so I was like, okay, this better be good. But... I was actually very impressed with it, and I thought it was just so fun, so enjoyable, and such a good watch. I definitely enjoyed it and found it entertaining, but I do think it felt a bit dated to me, and maybe that was just some of the dialogue going over my head on a first watch, but I felt kind of disconnected from the characters, and... I didn't find it that funny. I'm sorry to say. I just didn't really. I wasn't laughing. Fair enough. I mean, you're also not seeing it in a room full of people in 1941 or laughing their heads off. So Yeah. I could <laughs> yeah. imagine, but, but on my own, no. Well, let me go a little further with you then. Was there any part of the movie in particular that you did like or that struck you as being kind of the best part? I definitely found their relationship intriguing. And I liked watching it unfold. I think there's just the love story itself. I don't know if I'm supposed to feel it really intensely, but I I wasn't really like, yes, I'm rooting for them. But I did think because it was kind of weird, I was interested in it. So that kept me watching. And 
I was satisfied with how it ended. And I did like her pretending to be someone else. And I thought that was really funny. His assistant or whatever being like, it's the same dame. I thought that that whole bit was funny. Just to explain for our audience, at one point, romance goes south on a boat between Henry Fonda and Barbara Stanwyck when he finds out that she's a con woman. And she literally comes to his mansion pretending to be somebody completely different without changing her appearance at all. And somehow manages to convince him to marry her as this woman named Eve, and her real name is Jean. I just love Barbara Stanwyck. She's so beautiful. I loved her little two-piece dress she wore on the cruise ship. I really thought it was super funny that she just so quickly fell in love with him. <laughs> and they were tripping him all the time, and she was just so cheeky. And all of a sudden, they were in love, and I was like, whoa, girl, pump the brakes. But relatable. I definitely was cackling a bit here and there, but similar to what Olive said, I think the humor was a bit dated, but always with older films, I'm considering that. He's a scientist who comes from a very wealthy family, but doesn't seem to care much about money. I guess he doesn't have to. She's a con woman who's traveling with her dad, who's a con man, and his friend, who's also a con man. And they're just doing scams all over the place. She understands human behavior in an incredible way. And he understands snakes. Basically, that's what he's good at as a scientist. So what do you see as the attraction between the two of them? Do you think they work as a couple? And what do you think makes them work as a couple? Well, she definitely resembles a snake and that she's conniving. And she's just like slithery. You know what I mean? She's just snake-like. And I think that's what they're getting at as far as what he's drawn to about her. She was just really standing in her power. And that's what made their dynamic really interesting is that he was like a nerdy millionaire. And she came from a con artist family and she kind of conned him, but fell in love with him. So it's just, I think the dynamic was perfect, like weak and strong, if you know what I mean. So you think it's going to work in the long haul for them after the movie ends? Yeah, she's like classic <laughs> manipulator. It's going to work forever. <laughs> Olive is not in agreement with you on that. Olive, what did you think about their relationship? If you look at it as being silly and fun, them falling in love so fast, it works. But if you're actually thinking about this as like a real deep relationship, it just, it's clearly not. Um, <laughs> let me figure out how to phrase this. I think that they were both very attractive people. I wouldn't be surprised if this was a purely physical attraction because on an emotional level and like a, having things in common level, there wasn't much there. Well, there's a scene where she takes him back to her room about 20 minutes into the movie, and she's on the love seat, and he falls off the love seat. Mm-hmm. She's saying things to get him kind of hot and bothered, and then kind of blowing him off when she feels like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like, I think I'm going to sleep well tonight, and he's like, not me. <laughs> <laughs> David, what was it like for you the first time you saw it and this time? So the first time I saw it, I really didn't feel it was one of my favorite Preston Sturges movies. There are a lot of things I liked about it, but it goes pretty far out of its way to be unrealistic, unbelievable, not to take itself very seriously. Some of his other films actually have something to say that is more serious. The Great McGinty really is about political corruption. It's a satire. But still, it's, it's saying something about it. And Sullivan's Travels has a lot to say. This, it's not really about this guy and this woman. It's really more about the idea that to make romance work, 
you've got to put on an act, not only for the other person, but you also have to put on an act for yourself. You've got to have some blinders on. You've got to be thinking, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Or convince yourself. That's what I mean. There's self-deception involved in romance. There is deception of the other person involved in romance. Yeah, David, I think that's exactly why I'm single. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask a question to everybody here. Who were you rooting for in the movie? Uh, Were you rooting for anybody at all? Oh, Barbara. Barbara, yeah. Yeah. And why are you rooting for her? What's the mechanics of that? She's funny. She's the smartest person, I think, in every room. She can act her socks off. She has great clothes. And I think I just really like seeing a woman in 1941 knowing what she wants and getting it by any means necessary and not apologizing for it. I I like that. I like seeing her not be down and dirty like they probably would play her now and show every nitty-gritty part of her. But I think the coyness and the power is something really cool to see, like, you know, World War II time. These are women who were in the workforce, Rosa the Riveter, and this is a time where, like, you had to get what you want if you wanted it, and it didn't come easy. But she had the power to do it, so why not? I completely agree. Completely agree. I think she was standing in her power and all the effort she was putting in, at least just for her appearance, I'm like, she deserves some payback. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I was definitely rooting for her too, but I think I was also rooting for Charlie because I I found him likable. He's just kind of not, I don't know. I don't want to say he's not (laughs) that smart because he's smart, but like in a science way, he doesn't have the street smarts. (laughs) And, but he's, he's, cute little guy and he likes his snakes and like I feel like his intentions are good and she's totally like just fucking with him and just (laughs) stringing him along for so many ridiculous games I think in a romance you typically are just rooting for them to be happy together and for it to work out so I was glad that it did but it also made me think about honesty or dishonesty in relationship because it's so dishonest like (laughs) just the fact that they get married with him thinking she's this fake person Eve and then when it ends and they're happy ever after is like yeah actually I was lying the whole time and it's me and but they don't even show his reaction so it's like I don't know almost implying like it doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) at the beginning she didn't even ever get the chance to possibly tell him anything like it was a very quick relationship very fly by the seat of your pants and he's ready to marry her like Land and sinker immediately. I mean, what it was a couple of days, if that, on the ship. I feel like it was the morning after they met. No, and they're like, probably. We're in love. And, and he's just like, You didn't tell me everything about yourself. Da, 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 da. It's like, I did not tell my boyfriend everything about myself, like, right away. Like, you gotta sprinkle it in there sometimes. But he didn't even give her a second to be honest. And he was like, I wanna marry you. So, okay, jump to conclusions, don't even have a conversation about it. So I think the whole thing was just like her revenge of being like, if we're not going to talk about it, you're not going to give me the chance. I'm going to totally dupe you instead. And I'm not going to give you that chance that you didn't give me. Well, there's that incredible scene where she says, you'll find out that good girls aren't all that good and bad girls aren't all bad. Mm. And what do you guys think about that as a message of the movie? I think she was trying her best to speak her truth and show her humanity in the moment. And that when asked, will own that she cons people and she's like, I'm a bad bitch, but I also am a human being and like, I love you, you know? And she knew she couldn't throw it all at him in that moment. 
but she was trying to like warm him up to the idea, see what maybe his reaction was to the sentiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a bad girl, but you know, I'm sincere about loving you. And by the way, good girls aren't so good either. They're not as goody goody as they'd have you think they are. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. very true. As he finds out when he marries her alter ego, <laughs> the lady Eve. <laughs> So did you guys find it funny? It's their wedding night. They're on the train and they're about to go to bed together. And she starts that to reveal <laughs> a string of lovers. I wonder if now would be the time to tell you about Herman. Herman. Herman? Who was Herman? I thought that was great. I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that like the intercutting too between like the train and his pacing and this alludes to the first like I'll sleep fine no I won't and it's just that constant little battle that they have where she's like I always have a leg up on you like don't even try and pretend that because you're richer that you have the power over me in any way she's playing with him so well and I love to watch it <laughs> well let me ask a question when she said she was going to get revenge on him what did you think the revenge was going to be I thought she was going to try and steal all his money somehow, but it was just breaking his heart, I guess. Yeah. I thought it would be money related, but also I think I was anticipating some psychological warfare. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some torture. Because when they show up at the altar together, I like, she's going to leave him at the altar. That's going to be it. Right. But instead she gets married to him and the humiliation, which I didn't see coming at all, is that's revealing the string of lovers. Vernon? I thought you said Herman. Vernon was Herman's friend. What a friend. Like, it's always something super intimate because it can't be public. Something that he has to hold by his chest and he can't tell anyone or else he's the fool. That's smart. What's the significance of him tripping all the time? I just felt like it kind of spoke to him being like a little pipsqueak and like (laughs) being head over heels for this girl he doesn't know. Yeah, like her control over him. Falling in love in French is like tombe le feu. Which in English, it kind of sounds like the fall of the fool. I, I took French in high school. This is not me like trying to like flex. I'm not that good at it. But it's the one thing I remember <laughs> is like a fool falls in love first. And I feel like that's kind of what the whole thing was is if they immediately fell in love like that, like there's going to be some foolery and some fullness in it. I think it's mainly men that are the victims of this slapstick comedy. And it's really used to sort of undermine their attempts at decorum or morality, make them look ridiculous. All their best efforts aren't going to stop the stew from being dumped in their heads, that these people aren't really in control in the way they think they are. At the dinner party where she shows up as the Lady Eve, he has to change his clothes twice, I believe, right? At least. <laughs> at least. <laughs> three times. Three, three times. Three times. <laughs> Thrice. And, and the father at one point says, go put on a bathing suit. Because he's had like everything's been spilled on him. The father's so great. The way it's like everything his son does embarrasses him because his son just isn't as smart as he is. The son's like scientist smart, but his dad is more like a regular guy, street smart. And by the way, is he even really a scientist? I mean, he goes to this expedition and they're like, Yeah, we're really glad your father donated all this money. We hope you enjoyed being on the expedition. And he comes home with a pet snake in a tank. I mean, I don't know what he's done scientifically, to be honest. You know, when I first saw this movie years ago, it was the first Preston Sturges movie I ever saw. And when I got hooked, there's that great, great, the first time we see Barbara Stanwyck, she's holding her compact mirror and 
looking at how all the women in the room are trying to get the rich guy's attention, Charles. And she basically narrates what they're thinking, what they're trying to do. And then she narrates what he's thinking as he gets up to leave. And just as he's leaving, she sticks her foot out. He trips over it and the game is on. And then basically she takes charge of him and says, oh, you broke my heel. Well, we have to go back to my room. And, you know, I just was like, this woman is awesome. Right. The audience falls in love with her just during that one scene. It's the first thing you see of her. And already you're like, wow, she's smart. She's funny. She's right on. She's kind of wicked. And she gets him by doing the opposite of what everybody else does, right? She basically acts like she doesn't really need him. Yeah, I was I was actually going to bring up this scene because clearly when all those women are pining over him, he's just not very interested. So I think I was a little shocked when he fell for her so easily because I thought he was kind of like, oh, I'm better than all these women. But it was like right away. Well, I think he likes women who take charge because everybody else was like dropping the handkerchief or side eye and he's just like this is the same old thing like people are gonna eye me they know who i am they're serving my drink here and finally someone who actually does something about it instead of like beating around the bush she just gets after him and it's like oh someone who can take charge because i obviously cannot yeah i think he really needs a mommy <laughs> like, oh. he needs his wife to be his mommy do you know what i mean you barely yeah. see his mother in the movie like she shows up on the stairs yeah. at one point <laughs> She's probably like, I don't want to deal with you. And so he's like, maybe Barbara Stanwyck will be my mom. <laughs> <laughs> She's great at bossing him around, too. I love it. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you feel about the sincerity of her falling in love with him? We clearly see how he is manipulated by her. She gets him totally hot and bothered, you know, in that scene together in her room and kicks him out. By the way, he's been up the Amazon for two years and hasn't seen a woman. In two years, they mentioned that. <laughs> so how'd you feel about her the next morning going like, yeah, you know, I, I actually might not want to pull a con on this guy. I may actually be in love. I think she said it herself, like sometimes bad girls aren't always just bad. And she was definitely playing with fire because he's super likable, like we've already said. And he's cute. He's like silly. And he's like down to go along with her games, which is exactly what she wants. So what did she think was going to happen? She got what she kind of wanted. Like she has the best of both worlds. She can manipulate this guy and also like have him as her toy. And she, of course, fell for her own trap kind of. Interesting. And then when she gets her revenge, she wants him back at the very end. And I think the whole movie, we're really following her emotions. Like we're on her roller coaster. She just proves to herself then to him that they'll just fall in love with each other no matter what. It's like a them thing. It's not a situation thing. It's they're going to be in love and they're going to get married no matter which way it goes. So why fight it anymore? Nice. So one of the biggest questions in the movie is the huge swing that they take with her coming back as Lady Eve. I get excited because it's like, oh, that's the title of the movie. We're finally here. And she shows up and she's covered. She's in veils. And Muggsy's opening the door to let her out of the car. He immediately suspects that she's the same woman. And Fonda says, no, 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 she's not the same dame. If she had changed her hair or done something to try to disguise herself, then for sure she would be. But it's just too similar. It's impossible. So did you guys think that the mistaken identity thing was take you out of the movie? Or was there some sort of trick that writer-director Preston Sturges did to make it work for you? I think that her accent bothered me, and that took me out of her game. 
I was like, this is just like a transatlantic accent, like a 1920s radio presenter. It wasn't super English, but it was funny to see her like put on this high society act. I was like, she was eating up the rich people. Her Brooklyn accent comes in quite a lot. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's just because Barbara Stanwyck is incapable of erasing it and doing an English accent for that long, or if it's that just nobody cared, that it's just not to be taken seriously enough. That's funnier if she's trying to do an English accent, but, you know, her Bugs Bunny comes out. That's also what made it kind of funny is that she was obviously the same exact person. And he was like, well, I don't know. Maybe she's different. (laughs) Definition of gaslighting. How could anyone believe that this isn't the same dame? I mean, it's obvious, right? And I think, you know, as a writer, maybe I should be coming up with ways to mitigate that, right? But he does the opposite. He even has William Demmer say, yeah, she's even wearing the same perfume. He's like, yeah, proof that it's... And I'm thinking like, you know, we don't know what she smells like. He didn't have to put that in the script. He's like going out of his way to say, who cares that you're not going to believe this? It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the very last line of the movie is that Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda disappear into the stateroom. (laughs) And by the way, a great exchange. He says, there's only one problem. I'm married. And she goes, but so am I, darling. So am I. The door closes and the camera goes down to the handle and it opens. And you think, oh, my God, he found out and he's leaving. You think Henry Fonda's coming out, but it's Muggsy who was in the room, who's been kicked out by the lovers. And he basically (laughs) says to us, positively the same dame. (laughs) That was funny. Preston Sturgis is letting us in on the joke. He's basically saying, like, this is ridiculous. Of course she's the same one, and only an idiot wouldn't see it. And by Mm -hmm. the way, Henry Fonda's that idiot. Well, he never wanted to. He can, like, lie to himself just enough to where he feels it's okay to love her no matter what. There you go. Well... That's kind of what I think gets to the meaning of the movie, which David mentioned earlier, this idea of not just deception, but self-deception in love. And I guess I'll take it one step further. I think that's why we go to the movies. I think we know it's suspension of disbelief. You know, I just saw Maestro and that's Bradley Cooper playing Leonard Bernstein, but he's got great makeup, great sound. And I want him to be Leonard Bernstein, right? So we don't go to the movies to go, that's fake. That's fake. We go to the movies to go, just convince me enough so I can have a good time, please. (laughs) which is kind of like love. Mm -hmm. Just convince me enough that we can make this work. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. All right. So Kylie, you did a little research on the making of, maybe you can tell us about it. Yes. So the movie was filmed with a $660,000 budget and it was shot in just under 50 days. Sturgis had to borrow Henry Fonda from Fox, and it was right after he played Abraham Lincoln and Tom Joad in Grapes of Wrath. So it was a pretty big get for someone to borrow Henry Fonda after all of those performances. And then he got Stanwyck as well, and Stanwyck and Fonda actually had a very long career together collaborating, I think, two other times after this. And they actually just loved each other. And Sturgis, Stanwyck, and Fonda would hang out all the time off screen in their little like canvas chairs together. There's so many photos of them and they all just actually love each other, which is such a different vibe from Wild Bunch and Sam Peckinpah. Everyone wanted to fight him and this one, everyone couldn't get enough of each other. And it was a very artist heavy, super lovey-dovey behind the scenes set. But I think what I liked the most about this movie was Edith Head was the costume designer. Probably the best thing that ever happened to costume designing ever and forever and ever and ever. But she actually took Stanwyck because people often thought that her waist was too flat and she was too boring. And Edith was like, no, I'm going to make you some amazing dresses. And like Jake said earlier, those two pieces are stunning. 
And they worked together for years and years after, even exchanged dentists together. But also the script was totally challenged for a full rewrite because the studio didn't like all the butt falling, as they put it. Fonda, they wanted him to kind of stand up more. So they had a really fight to have Henry Fonda fall a lot after being Tom Joad and Lincoln as well. But they got it, which is good. At the beginning, right, we talked about him being tripped. But then at the very end, he's on the boat and he trips and falls. Then you see it's Stanwick sitting there in a chair. Now is Jean again, the con woman. And he turns around and he grabs her up in his arms. He's so happy to have the con woman after having had the good girl who turned out to be not so good. <laughs> He'll take the bad girl who's not so bad. Right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but my heart really swelled. I actually cared about them. And the other thing, too, about his movies, he tends to end them very fast. When the ending comes, it just goes boom, boom, boom. So, Jake, do you want to say anything about the times when the film was released? Well, I think we know a lot about what happened after this movie was released in December, Pearl Harbor attack, and we entered the war, and you know, a lot of women were joining the workforce, all of our war efforts in the U.S. The general zeitgeist in America was super fearful of what was happening and being reported in the news, and that the main critique of Hollywood was that films are like too escapist. And interestingly enough, after the fact, the film industry lends a lot of help toward the war. And I think they were necessarily not wrong that they were escapists, but it was for a good reason. I think boosting morale in the country. We know a lot about this time in particular because in American history, it's an area of focus. But another thing that I found in my research was that quickie marriages were peaking between 1939 and 1945. People were rushing to get married like never before. So maybe the plot was kind of a play on that and like a critique maybe of like, what are y'all doing? You know, it's interesting. My great aunt, who was born before suffrage and died a few years ago at the age of 102, told me that back in those pre-war days, there was premarital sex, but it was assumed once you had that premarital sex with somebody that that you were going to marry that person. It was before the pill. Yes, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Women were entering the workforce and leaving the kids at home and being critiqued for just that, leaving their children at home without their supervision. And they were just really trying to assume their power and their place and fighting for that. And so I think Barbara was really speaking to the women at the time and like, do what you got to do. So women were probably rooting for her big time mm-hmm. for that. So she was born in 1907, which... It's crazy. That feels like so long ago. Um, But she grew up, sadly, without her parents and was essentially raised by her older sister in foster care. And she began working at the age of 13, which is so young, doing entertainment. And I read that she started dancing in nightclubs at 15 years old which just doesn't feel great because she was obviously a very pretty young woman and that is just so young. But after that, she started on Broadway in 1926 and did that for a few years. And three years later, so 1929, she started doing film and from there was in more than 80 films. And... I didn't know what to do with that, but it sounds like her career really just skyrocketed and she was pretty continuously working. 
And I think she had five films come out in 1941. I know she got nominated for an Oscar for Ball of Fire, Meet John Doe, The Lady Eve, and I think there's a couple others too. How do you have time for that? She was hustling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Seriously. There's a story. One time somebody said, you made more money than the president this year. And she said, I had a better year than he did. Oh, I heard that about <laughs> Babe Ruth. But maybe she said it too. <laughs> oh, I love her. <laughs> <laughs> she really did, though. Uh, and, and then Preston Sturgis. So let me ask a question for our young panelists over here. Did you feel there was something different about this movie in the way it was written or even directed than other movies of the era that you've seen? I think there was like a lighter tone, maybe. Have any of you seen any of his other films? I'm not sure. No. So, David, why don't you... Yes, let's talk about Preston Sturges. He was the most famous writer-director in Hollywood, but he's not anymore. He was born in 1898, and his parents were divorced when he was eight years old. His mother was an actress who was a social climber who traveled all around Europe trying to be a bon vivant. She was best friends with Isadora Duncan, the dancer. She's actually the woman that loaned her scarf to Duncan before she got in a car and was accidentally strangled by that scarf, famously, and died a premature death. So some tragedy there. But she also remarried a guy let's named... Move on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Anyway, maybe we'll just edit that out. Maybe it doesn't belong in here. <laughs> oh no, we're keeping that. We're keeping that. Good. So his mother got divorced when Preston Sturges was eight, and married a guy named Solomon Sturges. They were a solid kind of banker type, lived in Chicago, and Preston liked being with his dad in America, but he was most often dragged around Europe with his mom which he had very mixed feelings about. He got really tired of European high culture. He got tired of his mom's social climbing. He kind of liked the American down-to-earth thing more. But he was definitely caught between the two. And almost everything he writes in some ways about this tension between putting on airs and being highly cultured and needing to drag people down who are aristocratic and thinking aristocrats are, are bunk. And it comes up in this movie, it comes up even more in some of his others. He basically did not succeed at anything until he was 40. I mean, he, he invented women's lipstick that wouldn't run in the rain. It wouldn't wear off easily. Like he tried inventing things. He was an entrepreneur. He did all kinds of odd jobs. He was a pilot, a kind of an adventurer. When he was 40, he met a woman who lied to him and said, I'm writing a, a play about you and what a, what a bastard you are. And she actually wasn't a playwright, but he thought, what a great idea. I got to write a play. And he started writing plays <laughs> and most were flops, but he had a huge hit called Strictly Dishonorable. And it made so much money that he became rich just off that and went to Hollywood and started selling scripts. And within a few years, he was the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. Particularly, he wrote a, a script early on called The Power and the Glory, which a lot of people call the main influence for Citizen Kane. It's a script that jumps around in time, just like Citizen Kane does. A lot of flashbacks. He sold a lot of scripts. He got to the point where he was the third highest paid salary man in America. He was making $17,500 a week, plus 7% of all the profits on the films he wrote that were over a million dollars. And he still couldn't live on that. <laughs> he opened a restaurant on Sunset, and he, he knew how to spend it. He really got sick of the way directors were mangling his scripts. He thought that they were underplaying the lines that really needed to be sold and playing too much the lines that needed to be done kind of deadpan. 
And so he, he wanted to direct his own films. He went to Fox and he said, I'll sell you my favorite script, The Great McGinty, for a dollar. And I'll direct the film for a dollar, but just let me direct it. And yeah, they said, oh, a dollar is not enough money. So they gave him $10. <laughs> and he directed The Great McGinty. And it was an enormous hit. It's a great, great movie. I really recommend you all check it out. And this began one of the most incredible winning streaks in Hollywood history to this day. He made eight films in the space of three years, all of which were giant hits and all of which are really, I think, must-sees. The Great McGinty and Christmas in July were both 1940. In 1941, he did The Lady Eve and Sullivan's Travels. In 42, he did The Palm Beach Story. And then he also wrote The Miracle of Morgan's Creek and Hail the Conquering Hero and directed those movies those years, but they weren't released until 1944. Uh, he started making enemies at the studio. He was very impudent by his own admission. And finally, he had a failure with a film called The Great Moment about the invention of anesthesia. It was a serious film, though. That was the thing. It was a drama, right? It was the first time he went outside of comedy. That's right. And so that didn't work very well. And his career fell apart very quickly. And once his career started going south, the studios didn't want to work with him anymore. They just didn't like his lack of respect for their judgment. But everyone thinks of Preston Surge as a writer, which is what he is. He's a great writer. And he even said, oh, it was easy for me to direct because by the time I'd written these movies, they were already mostly directed. But I think he's selling himself a little short. So that's his story. His autobiography was called The Events Leading Up to My Death. And while he was writing it, he died of a heart attack at the age of 60. Oh. Yeah. Brutal. But he was on such a streak. Like the story I heard was that he would be at his restaurant, the Players Club in Hollywood, writing the movies while all around him, people were drinking and partying and eating. And it would be like first draft. Here we go. Well, imagine writing and directing seven classic films in three years. That's never no, happened. That. It's the only time that's ever happened. Yeah. And it's interesting. Sullivan's Travels is the one that would be the most obvious one to show you guys, because it's kind of the one you usually see in films class. It's about a screenwriter who wants to stop making frivolous Hollywood pictures and wants to make real pictures about real people and the real stories in the studios. Like, no one wants to see that. No one wants to see that. The film he wants to make is called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And of course, the Coen brothers are such oh. huge fans of his that they turned that into the title of one of their films. But that title is from a fictional film in... 100%. I mean, in fact, when their second Coen Brothers movie after Blood Simple, which is, was raising Arizona, and a lot of people thought it was a Preston Surge's, you know, homage. Yeah. Crazy characters, super fast pace, reversing expectations right and left. Kind of a happy ending that you don't see coming that seems weird and wacky. But Sullivan's Travels, what happens is he goes out on the road and he takes this big bus. He tries to discover America. There's all these cameramen that are documenting him trying to see. It's a complete failure. And somehow through a bunch of misadventures, he ends up arrested and on a chain gang in the South. <laughs> and yeah, no, it's, it's unbelievable. It gets really dark and it's a completely different tone. And so one night, all the prisoners are brought into a room with a projector and they're all downtrodden. They've had horrible days. They're beaten up, you know, and the movies that they show are cartoons. Mickey Mouse. And everybody around him starts laughing and he starts looking around and then Sullivan starts laughing. And at the end of the movie is he comes back to Hollywood and all he wants to make are frivolous, fun movies that'll help people to escape from the horribleness of daily life. Yeah, well, he says, you know what? Some people, that's all they have is a chance to laugh. 
So I think he gives us a few gifts with that and, and doing it in such a witty way is really special. I mean, I would highly recommend all of those movies. Hail the Conquering Hero might be my favorite. It's about a fake war hero who couldn't get into the army, but somehow is mistaken for a war hero in his hometown. He keeps trying to tell them the truth that he's not a war hero and nobody wants to hear it. Uh, I got, but also the miracle Morgan's Creek is great. It's a satire of the idea that every time there were quintuplets, it was gigantic headlines. So this woman has six tuplets, but she has no idea if she's married or who the father was because it was like a drunken night of helping out the sailors that was before <laughs> they head off to World War II. It's unbelievable that it all got past the censors. It's unbelievable they got past the it. Tony did it. Palm Beach Story is hilarious. Story is up of the rich. And then finally, The Great McGinty, his first film. It's a film about a crooked politician that puts up a bum as governor, as a front for graft. And then after like four years of doing nothing but terrible things, he decides, you know, I'm governor. I'm going to do one good thing. And it's his downfall. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing I'll say about Sergis as a director, he does a lot of long takes with the camera doesn't cut. Like the scene with Stanwyck and Henry Fonda in her bedroom on the ship. It goes for like three and a half minutes without any cuts. And there's a lot of scenes where people are tracking and talking, kind of which would later become Aaron Sorkin's West Wing claim to fame. And so I think as a director, he's underrated uh, because his writing's so good. He likes to confound expectations every time he hits them. When he comes up on a movie convention and it's supposed to go this way, he just wants to go the other way. And that's, I think, what's going on in The Lady Eve when you're saying, like, I I can't quite believe the way this is going. It's because he just doesn't want to care about the things that you're supposed to care about. It's his impudence again. We'll be right back after this. All right. So time for everybody to rate the movie. You have one to four stars. Four, highest level. Not only a great movie, but one that has moved you personally. Three and a half is an A. Three stars in A minus. Great but flawed. And then you got B plus and B minus, either two and a half stars, two stars, and then it goes down from there. So I'm going to start with Kylie. How do you rate The Lady Eve? I really enjoyed it, but I think I give it a three just because I feel like if it wasn't for the censors and it wasn't for everybody else constricting it, and if Sir just made it the way he wanted to make it, I think it would have been all star. Yeah, three, because I feel like there was so much potential there that just wasn't allowed to be on camera. Oh, interesting. Olive, what about you? Hmm. I'd say I'm having a hard time choosing between 2.5 and and 3. After our conversation, I, I definitely feel like I appreciate more of it. And I always have to watch a movie twice, I think many of us do, to like actually feel like I understand it and can appreciate it. But yeah, I mentioned I just didn't feel like a personal connection to it very much, but I did enjoy it. And there were definitely some funny moments and it was a fun glimpse into what these types of films were like at this time. I've never really seen something like it. So where do you fall? You have to give me a number, two and a half or three? Be honest. I'll give it a three. Whoa. All right. Jake, how do you fall? Also definitely a three. I think for me, it was a good movie, but it wasn't something that I was taken aback or wowed by. I think some of the other films we've watched have really like changed me as a movie watcher. So yeah, a three. For similar reasons to Kylie, I think there was some potential that it didn't strike, but it was still a really great film. And I would recommend it to other people. David, what about you? 
as a film, I have to give it a three. It's really hard for me to do because I give these three years of Preston Sturge's films, the seven films of his that I love, I give them more than a four if I could as a whole. This isn't my favorite of them. For some people, it is. I have a little trouble with Henry Fonda's performance. I know a lot of people feel very differently. Some people love Henry Fonda in this. I find him to be too serious. I I wonder what it would have been with Cary Grant. One great film to compare this one with is Bringing Up Baby, made the exact same year, Howard Hawks. Very similar plot. Cary Grant plays a scientist who's nerdy, wears glasses. Um, Very, very different performances. I think I like Cary Grant's performance more than I like Henry Fonda's. But I do like this script more than I like the script for Bring Up Baby. So there you have it. And of course, Bring Up Baby is also Catherine Hepburn. Hard to decide between Barbara Stanwyck and Catherine Hepburn, two of the greats. So it, it comes down to a three. Uh, I would recommend, though, that people who like this at all just go see those other Preston Sturges films. I think seeing these six or seven films can change your life. All right. For me, it's a three and a half. After I watched it this time, I went to look at how people on the internet rank Barbara Stanwyck movies or her performances. And Double Indemnity, everybody puts it number one because it's this incredible film noir. It's groundbreaking. She plays a very, very, very bad person, like not a heart of gold like this one. And they always list Lady Eve as number two. But to me, this is my favorite Barbara Sandwick performance because she's so unbelievably charming. She's so witty. She's so great. Also, it's the first Preston Sturges movie I ever saw. And I definitely caught on that there was a different tone than other movies of the time. And I also really love the whole magic trick of the movie. The movie is about con men and con women, obviously, con women and con men. And there's a great scene where her father, the colonel, I guess she says, oh, you're dealing the fifths? And he goes, yeah, I'm doing the fifths. We have no idea what that means. And basically, he does this card trick, and it's unbroken take over his shoulder where you know he makes the aces appear every time. And the playfulness of the movie, the fact that the movie is kind of a con job on Henry Fonda, that it's a con job on us as an audience in a certain way. It's just so fun. And I really felt the roller coaster of emotions. And this time I really cared about them at the end. I was happy they got together. And one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is the one where the colonel, the father, has now cheated Henry Fonda at cards out of $32,000. And at this point, he thinks that Henry Fonda is going to marry his daughter. And the line he has is, oh, no, this is so embarrassing. Make the check out to cash. (laughs) I mean, just the throwaway nature of it was just so good. So we're averaging out as a three, which I think is totally fair for this movie. Uh, For me, it's a little bit better. So if you want to watch The Lady Eve, it's streaming for free on the Criterion channel with a subscription. And it's available to rent on Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, and it often shows up on TCM and Max. Speaking of YouTube, you can find Film Generations there with clips and stills and on audio wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like our show, please tell your friends. Please rate and review the show so others can find out as well. Film Generations is an Electrocast production. I'd like to thank our panelists, Kylie LaRue, Olive Goldberg, Jake Flowers, and my co-host and the producer of our show, David Tauzik. Executive producers are myself and my partner at Electrocast, Peter Rafelson. Our editor is Marcus Campito. Please join us for our next episode for a big change of pace. We're going to move it up about four decades for another twisted tale of love. This one with a darker edge. Writer-director David Lynch's 1986 surrealistic journey to the lower depths of suburbia, Blue Velvet. 
Will our panel of young film lovers follow David Lynch deep into the id? Well, there's only one place where you can find out, and that's here on Film Generations. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. 